Let's rise if you're able in respect and honor of God's word. As we read this morning from 1 Corinthians 1. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews, and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. It's good to see you on this national can't-get-out-of-bed day. It's kind of a painful moment, so I'm grateful that you all still were able to join us. It'll be interesting to see who comes at 9.30. Uh, we can then uh, show grace to them rather than mockery. Um, this is a passage that I'm looking forward to looking at with you, but before we do that, would you please join with me in prayer? Father, these words that we have here before us... Um, are a stark reminder of our inability to see. Uh, we, in our sinfulness, see foolishly. And left to our own devices, we cannot see your glory and see your wisdom. And so we ask now that your spirit would open our eyes, open our heart, help us to see you. We pray that you would use this time reflecting on the power of your cross to Enable us to become the worshipers of you we were created to be. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as Matt already mentioned, that we are, for this five-week period leading up to Easter, uh, spending our time focusing very intentionally and specifically on the cross. 
And this morning, what I would like to consider, because I think our passage calls us to consider this, is the power of the cross. We, the verse that went right before our passage speaks about Paul preaching in a way where the power of the cross is made clear. And then verse 18 says about, for those who are believing, it is the power of God. There's this language about power. And the power that it's talking about is very specifically a power that we need but that we're not aware that we need. In fact, we might even say it's a power that we probably don't even want. And that's the power to put us in our place. This week, I think, the Beauty and the Beast movie is coming out, which I don't understand why it needs to come out, because 20 years ago it already was made and it was good. But, you know, maybe some people want to see Emma Watson as Belle. But if, you, if you've seen Beauty and the Beast the movie, you'll know what it's about. It's a story of redemption, right? It's a story of someone who were described at the very beginning, uh, this prince who was, who was selfish and spoiled and unkind. He's someone who is full of himself. There's this arrogance, and as long as he's like this, it's going to stand in the way of him ever being able to be the person that he needs to be. He'll never even be able to really enjoy life. What needs to happen to him is he needs to be put in his place. And that's what happens, right? Through this curse, he's made this hideous beast, and at first he's bitter and he's angry, but through this humbling process and as he experiences love, He is changed to someone who is humble and loving. It's a redemption story that begins with him being put in his place. And that's not just unique to the movies. We see stories like this in the Bible. If you've ever read the book of Daniel, you might remember this really unusual story of Nebuchadnezzar, how you have this person who is the great king, essentially, of of the world from his perspective, and he's at the very top of the palace looking over the city and saying, I did this. Essentially, I am awesome. And in that moment, it says he was struck down by God, not in death, but he lost his mind. For, For months upon months, even years, he was like an animal. Until at one moment, his eyes were opened and he acknowledged that God is the one who is great and God is the one who gives power and he is in that moment able to see. It's a redemption story that begins with him being put in his place. Or maybe you're familiar with the story of Naaman, one of my favorites, kind of an obscure story that happens a couple centuries earlier. There's this great war hero, Naaman, a war hero of Syria, one of Israel's semi-enemies. But this great general who has every reason to feel proud of himself because of his accomplishments becomes sick. He, He takes on leprosy. And he hears that there's this prophet, Elisha, that's in Israel who might be able to heal him. And so he takes his band, he takes his riches, and he goes to the prophet's house. And Elisha doesn't even come out to him. He just sends a servant. And the servant says, just go wash in the Jordan River seven times, you'll be fine. And Naaman is incensed. Who is going to treat me like this? And what an inane thing for me to do. But then the servant of his says something really wise. He says, if if this person had told you to do something really hard, wouldn't you have done it? But you're just supposed to do something easy. Now, what the servant doesn't realize is actually what Elisha is calling him to do is really hard because for Naaman to take this step, it's going to be for him to have to let go of his pride and his self-centeredness and his arrogance and humble himself and do something that feels weak. And that's exactly what he does. 
and washing in the Jordan, he comes up and he's healed. And having been put in his place, which is exactly what Elisha was intending to do, he's able to speak of the glory of God and he is redeemed. He is redeemed and it begins with him being put in his place. And what I want to suggest to you this morning is that when we understand what the cross is about and what the power of the cross is about, one of the key things is it's a power that is intended to put us in our place. Now, when I speak about our place, what am I talking about? Well, our passage actually tells us what our place is supposed to be. The very last verse says this is who we're supposed to be. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. That's the place that we're supposed to be in. What does it mean to boast in the Lord? Well, we know what it's like when we boast. I was thinking about what are the things that, that we who are adults who no longer kind of like boast obviously tend to boast about. And it's, I think more often than not, busyness, right? You know, so how was your week? Whew. You know, it's just been so busy at work. I've been getting just so many new clients. And, you know, combined with that and me coaching our Little League team in the World Series and completely redesigning our deck in the back, it's amazing that I was able to run the 30 miles that I run every week. I mean, this is an exhausting week. Now, now what's going on there? In that moment, obviously, I am impressed with myself. And not only am I impressed, and not only impressed, but I, I feel bigger, more significant by the things that I've said. And I'm hoping that you will join in with me in seeing my greatness. That's what it means to boast in ourselves. So when we're talking about boasting in God, it's not that we're full of ourselves anymore. It's that we're filled with admiration for God. It's that we see what God is doing. We see his significance, his greatness. We're, we're intoxicated by it in such a way that we want other people to see it as well. It's, it's a delight and awe and the glory of God that we want to bring others into. That's our rightful place, to be those who boast in the Lord, who are filled with admiration for God. It's, it's simply another way of saying that our rightful place is to be those who are worshipers of God. I mean, that's what we were made for. You know, Augustine famously wrote in his confessions, God, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. He's saying, God, our rightful place is to be your worshipers. That's, when we're talking about being put in our place, that's the place for us to be, those who boast in God and worship him. That's where only are we going to truly find peace and joy. But there is a problem. There's something that stands in the way of us being in that place. And it's the same thing that we saw in Nebuchadnezzar, and it's the same thing that we see in Naaman, and there's different words we could use for it. We could speak of sin, but that's maybe a bit more generic. We could speak of pride. That's more to the point. But I want this morning to specifically use the term that we see in Romans, and that is the word godlessness. Scripture tells us that when we broke our relationship with God through sin, way essentially at the beginning of time, we did not deal with it well. The way that we dealt with it is by trying to forget about it. I mean, we know that's what we deal with problems sometimes. We just try to put it out of our mind. And Scripture says that's what we did with God, that when we broke a relationship with him, we, 
we, we, we put him out of our mind. We sought to forget him. The language the Bible says is we suppressed the truth. Our hearts were darkened. We didn't want to remember something that was going to be troubling, so we forgot God altogether. And that word that is describing that, that pushing God out of our mind is godlessness. Godlessness is not debauchery or, or the like, obvious evil. It's not even talking about atheism. It's talking about in our lives, forgetting the reality of who God is. And if you think about it, even as we have been brought to Christ, we still see the effect of godlessness in our own hearts, don't we? I mean, how often have you found it that you've had an exhausting day, filled with stress, one moment to the next, and at the end of it you realize there was not a moment in this day where God even occurred to me, where I turned to him in prayer, where I gave thanks to him, I live today completely godlessly. And that's something that stands in the way, this, this godliness, godlessness, excuse me. It, it keeps us from being in our rightful place as worshipers of God. Because, see, the, realize, the reality is there's something deep in our souls that doesn't want to be displaced from the center of the universe, Right? When we respond to things in stress, it becomes clear that we want to be the ones in control. We want to be the most important person. We don't want to surrender control and understanding and in even admiration to someone else. That is the instinct of godlessness, and it is what stands in the way of us being put in our place. And this is what Paul addresses in our passage. He says in uh, verse 21, the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through its wisdom. That's talking about godlessness. This world being broken cannot see God. It does not know God. And then he kind of speaks of two specific versions of this godlessness. He says in verse 22, the Jews demand signs, the Greeks demand wisdom. We could speak of this as kind of the religious response of godlessness and the intellectual response of godlessness. The Jews seek signs. This is the religious response. When he's speaking of Jews, he's not just speaking of all Jews, because, of course, he is a Jew, and many Christians are Jews. He's speaking of certain Jewish leaders at the time making certain demands when they're hearing the gospel. We want a sign. Now, it's probably a strange thing to talk about a religious form of godlessness until you realize that godlessness is not just believing that there is no God. It's just not believing that there is a true God. In other words, it's still making in our minds and our hearts a God that we like, that we are comfortable with, that that meets our needs. And so when you have this demand saying, we want a sign, a sign of power, it's saying we want to see, if you're going to tell us to worship, we want to see that this God meets our needs, that he's powerful enough to be the king who can take care of our enemies, that he's going to meet our desires, show us that this God is worthy because we want one that meets the needs that we have. That's the religious impulse. And it's not just something that was of that day, it's something that is throughout churches even today. There's uh, a sociologist, Christian Smith, who said when he analyzes what you see in much of churches today that many churches don't actually have Christianity as their religion. They have an alternate religion that he calls moral therapeutic deism. That is, when they come to church, they're looking for something to give them rules. 
That's the moral part, so they can know how to live their lives. And they're looking for something to make them feel better, something to help them in the middle of suffering and something that will give their life meaning. That's the therapeutic side. And then apart from that, they just generally want to be left alone. Deism, that's you know, kind of God at arm's length. It's finding a God that meets our needs, that, that we're comfortable with. But that's not the true God. It's a form of godlessness. So the Jews seek a sign, something that shows that this is going to meet their needs. On the other hand, the Greeks seek wisdom. This is the intellectual response. They want something that makes sense, that they can get their minds around. And again, that's not an impulse that was just of that time. You, you look at some of the discussions of like the new atheism, like a Richard Dawkins or a Christopher Hitchens, and, and what is it that they say ultimately? They say, we don't want a religion where we can't fully understand it, that our minds can't get around it. So you have two demands. We want a God that meets our needs, and we want a God that makes sense to us. And the problem with both of these is that it is impossible to make these demands and truly know God. I mean, just think about this for a moment. When I say, I am only going to worship a God that fulfills my desires, who is actually God in that sentence? It's me, right? Because I'm the one who gets to decide what God does. Or if I say, I am only going to believe in a God who makes sense to me. Who is God there? Again, it's me. It's implying that I'm the one who sees things completely, and God has to somehow fit into my massive understanding of the world. The very demands being made reject the God who is more important than we are and bigger than our minds can handle. It's godlessness. And as long as we hold on to these things, we will never be put in our rightful place. And that's what the power of the cross does. It blows that up. I suppose if you think about it, that, that God could have chosen to do things in such a way where he would be able to satisfy those demands that we've made. It's possible, I think, that Jesus could have come in a way that somehow was clearly much more impressive than he did. He might have been able to win the rulers of the age with his might and his awesomeness in a way that he didn't. And it's also possible that maybe he could have explained things more so that the intellectual elites of the day might have felt more that this makes sense to me, I'm okay with this. But God doesn't do this. When he is faced with the demands of make it fit my needs and make it fit my understanding, he gives the very opposite. He gives the cross. I mean, that's what verse 21 says. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. The message of the cross is a scandal, a stumbling block to the religious. Why? Because it's about a savior who suffers. It's about a God who suffers. And that means there's a calling for us 
who worship him to suffer. That is not something that obviously meets our desires. You know, the cross in some ways judges both morality, saying you can't do this, and therapy, it's not telling you anything good about yourself. It goes against what anything we want. It is scandalous. It's offensive. And the cross is foolishness to those who want to make sense of everything. I spoke earlier of Richard Dawkins, you know, one of the, the new atheist writers, and he wrote, It's a horrible idea that God, this paragon of wisdom and knowledge, power, couldn't think of a better way to forgive us our sins than to come down to earth in his alter ego as his son and have himself hideously tortured and executed so that he could forgive himself. I mean, he sums up why it looks like foolishness. It doesn't make sense from our human understanding. It is foolishness. When people demand something that will comfort them and something that meets their needs and others demand something that will make sense, God refuses. He does the opposite. He gives Christ crucified, both scandalousness and foolishness. Now, why? Why does he do that? Well, there are, I think, two reasons. The first is that Christ crucified exposes us. Verse 20 says, Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? And when it's saying God has made the wisdom of the world foolish, it's not that he has suddenly transformed something that was once wise into foolishness. The idea is that he has exposed it. That he has shown that the wisdom, that what appears to be wisdom is actually foolish. You know, all of the great people of the world, the debaters, the scribes, when the power of God appears before them in the message of the cross, what do they do? They scoff at it. Verse 18, while it is the power of God to us, it is foolishness to the world, we're told. By this very judgment, humanity itself is judged. We think that we're the ones sitting in judgment, deciding whether or not God passes the grade, when our very choices expose us and judge us. Think of it this way. Imagine you have a friend who um, is maybe fairly well off, but isn't necessarily great when it comes to taste. And he, he takes a trip to Paris, and he comes back, and he tells you, you know, this, this tour guide thing said that I should go to this museum, the Louvre. And so I went, and it was so unimpressive. I don't know what the big deal was. I mean, I was hoping for like a painting with a dog playing poker, and there was none of that great art. There's this one Mona Lisa, and I don't know why everyone was so excited about it. If you have someone saying stuff like that, that tells me absolutely nothing about the Louvre. And it tells me absolutely nothing about the Mona Lisa. What it does tell me about is that this friend of mine doesn't know art, right? By his judgments, he is exposed. And the same holds true with us. When, when humanity makes judgments about God, what does that tell us about God? Absolutely nothing. Because even the quote-unquote foolishness of God is much greater than our wisdom. The quote-unquote weakness of God is so much beyond our power 
Who are we to tell God, the one who is the center of the universe, for whom all things, the one to whom we owe all life, the one to whom we owe all worship, who are we to say, God, this is what you have to do? And who are we who can't even figure out politics, who can't even yet figure out so many things, who are we to tell God, this is what you need to be to be rational? Do we not see how foolish and arrogant we are to put ourselves in this place? See, when Jesus comes and dies on the cross and human judgment finds the cross offensive and foolish, all it does is show us how self-centered and small-minded we are. The cross exposes us. But it does something else. If we are willing to receive it, the cross, as I said at the very beginning, has the power to put us in our rightful place. Now, Paul continues to speak of the way that God is doing things, and he moves not just talking about the cross, but even even the people that God saved. And you can see Paul is not out to save egos because he says, think of who all you guys were before you became Christians. None of you were that awesome. None of you were that well-born. None of you were wise. And then he says, let me tell you why God did all of this this way. Let me explain both the cross and even why he chose you lot. And he says, verse 28, here's the explanation. God chose what is low and despised in the world even the things that are not to bring nothing, things that are, and here's the key line, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He chose the way of cross to take away our boasting. He chose the way of the cross so that we might be put in our rightful place. Let's think about Naaman again. Remember what we said that Naaman, the, the, the reason that he was given this, it was to have him come to an end of himself. When, when Elisha gave him these instructions through his servant, he had a choice. He could either hold on to his self-centeredness and his pride and stay leprous, or he could let go of it, humble himself, and receive the grace of God. And that's exactly what the cross does for us. The cross places before us a decision. Either we hold on to the things that we want to, where we get to be at the center of things, and we hold on to our godlessness, and we decide what is right and what is wrong and what is good for us and what is not and what makes sense or what doesn't, or we let go of these things and allow ourselves to be put in the rightful place so that we can receive the grace of God. You know, this is why so many people can hear the gospel again and again and again without being changed, because the cross is so threatening. It is so offensive. It calls us to come to an end of the things that we hold on to for security, and it terrifies us. But... For those who are willing to open themselves up to what the cross has for us, it is explosive. There's this story that's told when 
George Whitfield was a preacher in the 18th century, and he was, you know, throughout New England and beyond, this great awakening of many people being changed. And there's this one modest farmer who wrote things down, and we still have his record. And here's what he said that happened. He said, this preaching, he said, gave me a heart wound. And by God's blessing, my old foundation was broken up. And he was changed. He was given a heart wound. And by God's blessing, his old foundation was broken up. Do you know what that is? To have your old foundation broken up. Because the cross is subversive. The cross turns our souls upside down if we let it. The cross has the power to take away our godlessness and humble us and put us in our place. And when it does, then, in that moment, we see the cross differently. See, the cross isn't foolishness. And when we step into our place and allow ourselves to be not God, but to let God be God and to let us be his creatures, we recognize that we look at the cross that there is a different, deeper kind of wisdom. I mean, the world, how long have we tried to figure out the problems of evil and the problems of suffering? And yet God does something that no one possibly could have imagined. Becoming one of us, dying for us to take our sin away. This is beyond, this is a wisdom that goes deeper than ours. This is why Paul can say that, that oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, his decisions are unsearchable. And when we let God be God and we allow ourselves us to be the creature, then when we look at the cross, we don't see weakness. We see a power that is deeper than any power that we know. I mean, we just think in terms of power, in terms of tanks and nuclear weapons and political power, but what can that really do in terms of change? Whereas in the cross, we see a different kind of power, a power of self-giving, of love. We see the power of grace. And it's a power that is truly able to give us hope. Because we are in Christ Jesus. And, and we're told that as we who are in Christ Jesus, verse 30 says, he has become our wisdom, our righteousness, our sanctification, our redemption. In the cross, all of our problems are dealt with. And we are made whole. And when we see that, and only when we see that, are we able to do what we must do when we see things clearly. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. I want to take a moment just to give ourselves a time to kind of spend time quietly before God, confessing where we have been godless, confessing where we have kind of turned ourselves away or we've made God subject to our judgments. I take a time confessing those things, then I'll lead us in confession, and then we'll have a time of also hearing what the good news is. So would you spend some time praying quietly in confession, and then we'll pray together.
Our Father, you are way beyond our understanding and our comprehension. When we pause for a moment to consider really who you are, that you are the one who has always been, you are the one who will always be, you know every star by name, you hold every atom together. Lord, we confess in that knowledge that we have been arrogant. We have forgotten who we are. We have treated you as someone who should do what we want, someone who should fit our understanding. Rather than like Job, putting our hands over our mouths and recognizing how much greater you are. Lord, forgive us for our pride. Forgive us for our self-centeredness. Forgive us for withholding from you the worship that you deserve. Lord, as those who are forgiven through Christ Jesus, we ask that your spirit would renew us, that you would draw us not only to the cross, but draw us to boasting in you, delighting in your goodness and your glory, savoring your grace, that we might be the worshipers you created us to be. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, hear the good news of the gospel. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? For I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Hear the good news. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Thanks be to God.